0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the History Respawn Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. On today's episode, we'll be discussing recent news in history games, upcoming history game releases, and the non-history games that we've been playing recently. Uh, but before I get to all of that, I want to introduce my co-host on this episode, the best college esports coach <laughs> in North America, Dr. John Harney. Hey, John.
1: Hey, Bob. Thanks for the intro. The entirety accurate intro.
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I want to spend a little time here at the top of the episode uh, saying hello to our new listeners. Uh, We got a a new slew of subscribers over the uh, last month to the podcast. And uh, this is uh, in the previous month, September, where we didn't actually put out a podcast. So it turns out the secret, John to getting more listeners is to not to not put any content out. I, I had no idea. Um, <laughs> uh, but to those of you who are new listeners to the show, welcome. Uh, I thought I'd spend a couple moments here at the beginning to talk a little bit about what we do and who we are. Uh, so John and I, we are professional historians, uh, and we teach at uh, universities in uh, the United States. And uh, we do History Respond, uh, this kind of hybrid digital youtube slash podcast stress slash streaming show on the side uh pro bono uh, without any grants (laughs) or anything uh but uh we do have a lot of fun uh looking at historical content in video games and we've been doing it for almost 10 years now uh so this is really making me feel old uh, but, uh, you're obviously aware listener of the podcast because you're listening to it. Uh, but we also have a YouTube channel and, uh, we do occasionally stream from Twitch as well, but those, uh, Twitch streams, we always archive onto YouTube, uh, anyways. Uh, and we do main shows where we consider historical games with guest scholars. Uh, we also do streams where it's just John and I talking about a particular game uh and we've also in this year launched a new sub series limited series called Civs 101 uh which is looking at uh civilization 6 and the leaders in civilization 6 uh in order to uh kind of consider uh the civilization series in the midst of its uh 30th anniversary uh so yeah i think that's the gist of it john is there anything else you wanted to add about uh this show and what we do
1: um i don't think so other, other than you know, you're 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 being very modest, Bob. You you created this is this is a a media platform. I actually don't know whatever the <laughs> the synergistic title would be. We've been well, doing this since before it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um,
0: so if you are a new listener, thank you, thank you for joining us. Um, if uh, you are interested. Uh, In our content um, and, you know, kind of getting a catalog of what we've done so far, I encourage you to go and visit our website, historyrespawn.com, which is uh, hosted by Squarespace. uh, And Squarespace has got some really great uh, search uh, capabilities, uh, and it really helps if you're trying to find old stuff uh, that, that we've done in the archives, almost 10 years worth of work. Uh, so yeah, go and check that out. We, we post all of our content on that website and, uh, we haven't really done much writing on that website, but, uh, if you're looking for old stuff that we've done, uh, then go there. And, uh, if you really like us, uh, please consider supporting this show on Patreon. Uh, this podcast in particular wouldn't exist, uh, without support, uh, from history respond patrons. Uh, And so you can find our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash history respond. And when you are going through the tiers of uh, patrons, uh, you can, uh, you know, uh, sign up at the base level and get uh, emails from me, occasional emails from me about what we're doing and what we're planning. Uh, You can also uh, get to the uh, next tier where you're on our uh, discord server. Uh, which is uh, occasionally lively. I wouldn't say it's all the time. <laughs> um, and then there's uh, additional tiers in which you get the ability to um, uh, engage our, uh, our guest scholars on the show with questions. Uh, and we had a, a recent Civs 101 episode uh, focused on Queen Victoria in England in which we had a, uh, a HR patron uh, ask a question, a really good question, uh, related to how the English are depicted uh, in, uh, civilization six. Um, and then, uh, another kind of note about patrons, uh, it was uh, based on, uh, a recent discussion on our discord server, uh, that I decided to do an upcoming episode of the show on, uh, Margaret Thatcher's tech base, uh, which is a new, uh, doom wad. So this is a, a doom mod, uh, that came out late last month, uh, in which you go get to go to hell and kill Margaret Thatcher. Uh, so uh, I asked I asked our patrons on Discord if this was a worthwhile game uh, for the show, and the immediate response was yes. You know, make it happen. So uh, later on this month, I'll be recording an episode of History Respond about uh, Thatcher's tech base and kind of considering. Uh, not only this ludicrous uh, Doom mod, but then also kind of considering Thatcher's legacy uh, more generally, and uh, you know what she means uh, to uh, modern British life, what she meant at the time of her uh, uh, leadership, but then also later on, uh, and then what she means to current debates over uh, Brexit. Brexit. Uh, so yeah. So those are just kind of the, some of the advantages you can get uh, from supporting the show. In addition to our eternal thanks, of course, for, uh, for helping us out. Uh, okay, well, with that introduction out of the way, I was going to talk a little bit about some of the history games that we've been playing recently. And uh, I'll start with you, John. Uh, John, you have been playing uh, mm-hmm. a new uh, MMO from amazon called new world so take it away
1: (laughs) so i will um yeah i'm gonna just kind of soliloquy here for a couple of minutes which is you're gonna add up to confusion so this game confuses me is the first (laughs) thing i'll say and then bob you and i can talk about it so for people who don't know um new world is the latest game from amazon game studios and amazon have been trying to make amazon gaming a thing Mm -hmm. for quite a while now so um, there are, I'm sure there are listeners who are Prime members who can avail of Prime Gaming, which is kind of a collection of goodies and free games and things like that. They update kind of on the month every couple of weeks. And um, they've been trying games as well, uh, which to date have been very ill-fated and have either just been collapsed before they ever got, you know, have been um, torn down before they ever got to release. Or in the case of the uh, the team shooter, Crucible, uh had a shockingly awful uh launch sadly for the people who made it uh (laughs) where it just it just completely it was just terrible it just completely failed um on launch um so new world is a turn of the tide for them and it it seems to be a hit at least moderately successful and it's um so it's interesting depending how you want to look at it the game is either kind of pirate themed or um you know, 13 colonies frontiersman themed. Um, And I think it's much more the latter in the sense that what you do is you spend the game, certainly in the early stages, if you want to, you can um, fish and you can hunt and you're running around kind of looking like a slightly video gamed up version of, you know, settlers in the Americas, Mm -hmm. European settlers in the Americas in the 1600s. And 1500s and 1600s. And so that that's an odd thing and when i um and it's odd for a lot of reasons and the game so the opening cinematic in the game and it's not a very story heavy game i'll come back to that point in a minute the opening cinematic for the game has a character it kind of throws a fake at you uh, there's a character you kind of well i thought at least was the player character but is not and he's wearing a full-on kind of conquistador style metal mask with the bearded face on it mm-hmm. um And he meets with a priest and they kind of have a discussion of mystical things in this new world and they travel to the new world. And and I'm all like, geez, this is this is very not this is not what I was expecting at all. And I had tried the game in the beta and for a bunch of reasons, quit on it incredibly early. Um, And one of the reasons I quit on it early was I just I just didn't like any of this framing at all. Mm-hmm. You know, I was it was just it just wasn't and, and not not in the sense that I'd articulated any kind of specific anger against it. I just didn't like it. And and I, I it wouldn't be a time period I'm a big fan of anyway in general. Um but the game has since come out and I was a little surprised at the lack of criticism it's kind of received in this regard. There was definitely an article in Polygon uh when it was in beta that talks about the issue of effectively it being a colonist fantasy. And although there are no indigenous people in the game uh, you are killing these kinds of these corrupted peoples that one could infer without making too big a leap are proxies for a kind of a local population to be removed Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. And it it, it wasn't a bad article. I thought it was interesting, but it doesn't seem to have got a lot of traction. And even from people I follow on Twitter and stuff who usually care. I mean, an interesting comparison would be ghosts of Tsushima and when ghosts of Tsushima came out, people were frustrated. And I think, you know, some people made the case that Ghost of Tsushima was a, was an example of a bunch of white people making a kind of a Japan medieval tourism game, which I was, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I was definitely open to that critique, but like not, swayed enough to choose not to play it myself and then there's another kind of contemporary argument that the game was fascist because it was promoting samurai which i really i never found terribly convincing and i thought historically was actually a bit of a mess of an argument but these debates are healthy i think for games and so i'm a little surprised at kind of the lack of an argument about new world mm-hmm. and certainly if you were to play an hour of new world and not play much more and there's nothing why you know stopping you doing that i think you come away with a little bit of a sense of shock honestly of like geez, this this is kind of wild, you know, <laughs> they kind of made this game where grab yourself a musket and go into the woods and hunt some animal and kill some people. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what I say is interesting about the game and I, I, I have small kids and there's other games I like to play. So I haven't, it's kind of, it's an MMO. It's quite time intensive. Um, as I've gotten further into the game, I've become less disconcerted by it myself as a player. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, one, um, the game is extraordinarily tightly defined by its mechanics. Mm. Um, and, and this is one of the things that I think has made it a bit of a, you know, it's kind of been getting like seven out of 10 reviews, but it's kind of quietly selling lots and lots of copies because, you know, if you want to collect things and craft things and group up and um, attack and do PVP against other players, that's really all the game wants you to do. Mm. So, you know, there's not that much story-based stuff. And, you know, uh, I mean, even in World of Warcraft and games like that, people just fly through that text anyway. Yeah. Um, so I'm, not to say there's no effort. There has been an effort put in. And I, I quite like a lot of the visual design stuff, but it's an extremely kind of mechanical game. And I think that has genuinely pushed it into this kind of abstracted area um, where the question of theme, I don't think it becomes removed, but it becomes diluted in a way. Mm-hmm. Um um, and then the other thing I'll say is if you want to talk about the game as theme, it's, it's kind of an odd game in the sense that you have to pour a lot of time into it to qualify for the defining aspects of the game. But the <laughs> game was very, yeah, the game was very clearly defined as a P, de- designed as a PVP game. Like mm-hmm. that's what it was designed as. So if you were to extrapolate the theme of the game, um, you join one of three factions and a faction can declare war on another faction to try and control territory for the purpose of controlling uh, trade prices and things like that. And so what the game kind of wants these three factions to do is to constantly be at war with each other. So in effect, if you were going to quote unquote, you know, role-play yourself in this game, it's true that you could role-play yourself as someone who goes out hunting bear on his own mm. or her own for that matter. Um, but um, the reality is the, the the appropriate way to contextually role play within the universe the game is providing to you is to be
0: a merciless psychopath like that's mm. basically
1: what happens so I, I I don't know if that was
0: intended like, or not like but, all good games right
1: well, well like well like all good games right and then also. If you're angered by, um, and I don't think that would be, un- I don't think it would be indefensible by any stretch of imagination. If you're angered by the existence of this game and you feel that the game is effectively, um, you know, endorsing a kind of a co- colonist kind of view of the new world or whatever, it's like, well, good news because the game apparently thinks colonists are all insane people, insane murderers. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> I, I mean, I just think that's kind of, you know, that just is kind of fascinating um, to me. And then finally, just to wrap up, um, it's such an interesting game as well, because so despite these 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 themes, of the new world and everything, um, it has what is now quickly becoming or maybe has already become uh, standard practice or best practices and for character creation, things like that. So you don't pick a gender for your character. It just doesn't bother to give you the option. You pick a you pick a body type. Mm. um and the body types kind of conform to you know standard genders um but there's nothing stopping you picking what is kind of clearly the male body type but dressing your character and dresses and vice versa and stuff and just little things like that like just removing all these little kind of unintentional blockages to various identity things and stuff Mm -hmm. like that kind of stuff is in the game and then i think a clever decision and again i think people are free to reject this as a solution but um the bad guys the the mobs that you are killing um the theory is that they also were stranded on this on this island as well but unlike you they got corrupted mm. um and so and so the mobs are dressed in and although they they kind of have different colored skin they're kind of corpses but they're dressed in and they're coded as the same kind of ethnicity or or you know the same background as the player characters mm-hmm. um and i think that does make a difference i'm not trying to say that it solves those issues um or that it should for everybody but that's an intriguing thing so so sorry i kind of went on for a while there because it's it's i yeah Bob knows, of course. I sent a whole bunch of text to Bob over the course of two days, going, "I this game is confusing me. <laughs> like, I don't know what to think about it." Um, and in the end, I am doing a lot of fishing in the game, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what's happening? So that's that's New World. It's it's a it's it's a, I just fascinate you that it exists. I, Amazon Game Studios is it must be a very interesting place. I don't know how the decisions yeah. are being made, but it's a fascinating game.
0: So, is there a a narrative conceit for why you're in this island and why people look like conquistadors why it looks like the early modern period not
1: that i've encountered and this could be this could be an example of me just not getting far enough into the game Mm -hmm. but no all you have to go on really is an opening cinematic which you can find on youtube right now um which it's it's pretty you know he meets a mysterious priest who says let's go to the island and that's kind of it um it's not the first game to, to have that basic uh, kind of an intro but like the visual coding of it is very kind of is it, the guy looks like a conquistador yeah, you know yeah, yeah. um and then on the way to the island you are waylaid by a kind of a some kind of a uh supernatural um you know bordering on um uh, cthulhu like kind of force uh-huh. and this force uh, it corrupts the people so either there's two types of people who land on the beach those who survive and are still human that's player characters and those who've been corrupted they're mobs mm. that that's that's the premise so far mm. i have of the game and i'm like i'm not i'm like level 16 or 17 in the game or something yeah. so i mean you to be level 25 just to compete in some of the early kind of oh wow. uh, the dungeons and things like that yeah it's it's so odd it's a that true, way
0: like true mmo then yeah,
1: like I wouldn't be surprised if that's some of the stuff that they bring down. But it's also um, it's a forty dollar game, and and that's it. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they'll charge for um, expansions. Yeah, yeah, and you you can give them; they will happily take your real money. Um, if there's a certain hat you want, um, it's also got a very interesting, um, almost Eve-style uh, uh, marketplace thing where there's no way to sell your stuff except to other players. Mm. So there is not an NPC who will buy your trash. Mm-hmm. So you basically end up—at least I end up dismantling my trash, and then if something looks half decent, I throw it on to see if somebody wants to buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, it's intriguing, and you assume because Amazon is behind it, they'll stick with it for a long time. Especially now they actually sold a few copies, and and then with expansions, who knows? It could be like it could be like a Westworld, like the TV show type scenario, or like expansion two could be you know it could be anything, right? It could mm-hmm. be you know a completely different visual language for all the player characters. I don't know.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I can't say that I'm terribly attracted by the sound of this game. I've never really been interested in MMOs in general. And this one doesn't sound that much different from what I've, you know, experienced (laughs) before. it's, It's honestly, it's, it's, it's,
1: it's, it feels like a stripped back, almost retro MMO, but like well, I'll talk about Diablo 2 later as well. It kind of feels like it took a lot of the key things that are fun in some MMOs and just didn't bother with the rest of the stuff. <laughs> so, like for people who for people who are really into World of Warcraft Classic, for example, this might be their next jam kind of thing. It's uh-huh. a very stripped out, it's a very stripped down game in that sense.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and you know, I've got to say too, it, it is interesting to me. It does seem like this game is. Uh doing pretty well for amazon you know you see it Mm -hmm. on charts and everything and it seems to be uh, it has a lot of big player base and you know it does kind of remind me of the old mmo days where you know it's like there'd be a lot of discussion of single player games or uh you know multiplayer shooters in games journalism games magazines you know kind of just talk with your friends as well anecdotally but then quietly these MMOs were like the biggest games in the world you know like (laughs) for years and years and years that would be the case and it's kind of a bit like in this past decade where you know very quietly games like League of Legends and Mm -hmm. then uh, eventually Fortnite it's like oh actually Mm -hmm. these Mm -hmm. are the biggest games in the world like you know these are generating huge amounts of revenue and yet the discourse isn't really focused on it and I've always wondered why that is. You know, why isn't there more of a discourse about these kinds of games? And I think it's because so many of them are not necessarily, I wouldn't say time wasters, but they're a game where you have to invest a lot into. And it's kind of almost like an idle game uh, in the sense that you're, you just kind of like, you get on and, uh, you know, you play it for half an hour and you do that every night. And Mm -hmm. I've just. I've never been attracted to that type of game. And uh, I'm wondering what's wrong with me, uh, to be honest, (laughs) because these games do seem incredibly popular.
1: Well, you also don't have the time. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I think that my theory is one of the reasons is that um, video game (laughs) writers, their job, they they can't it doesn't it's difficult for them to have a healthy life if they have to budget like four hours of fortnite or four hours of dota 2 or four hours or whatever the game is i mean some of them do that obviously and you know now that you and i i mean are primarily teaching quote-unquote traditional age college students they they do things like that like i have mm-hmm. a, a guy in the overwatch team his favorite game is actually rainbow six siege and he's still playing a bunch of rainbow six siege on top of practicing for the overwatch team and i'm like how does he do it it's like oh right he he, he's 19, you know, he's, he has time. Um, but also like uh, Keith Stewart, who uh, for a long time ran game section over the Guardian newspaper and still contributes to that and everything. He, he's often talked about Fortnite on online about for his son. Um, it's like a hangout space. yeah. And so his son just plays a lot of Fortnite. And like you say, Bob, like I have played Fortnite. It's just not really not for me, but quietly, like it, it's, easily the biggest game on the planet. Yeah. Like by a distance.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know. Well, uh well speaking of Fortnite, uh I I played some Fortnite recently. <laughs> uh and in particular, I played the uh new mode called March Through Time, uh, which is a uh historically based game mode for Fortnite uh in which you play through uh Martin Luther King Jr's uh, historic I Have a Dream speech uh, during the March on Washington in uh, late summer 1963. Uh, and this is uh, uh, an event. I think it's, it might be a temporary event. I don't know how long it's going on. Uh, but it's an event that is put together uh, by Epic Games and then uh, Time Magazine. Uh, and so this is kind of a weird partnership. But uh, the hope, uh, at least according to the developers, Uh, is that this game mode in which you uh, go through different sequences of uh, the I Have a Dream speech uh, and you're walking around a recreation of uh, the mall in Washington, D.C. where the speech took place. Uh, The idea in the words of the developers is, quote, "Uh, teach kids about a vital era in American history uh, via a platform they find familiar and engaging. Uh, So this is excellent corporate speak here uh, from (laughs) Epic Games. Uh, And so this is a game mode that came out on August 26th, uh, near the anniversary of uh, this speech. Uh, Of course, an incredibly historic moment uh, in American history. This is, uh, you know, kind of one of these moments that I think regardless of where you are in America, uh, you know, regardless of where you go to school, whether it's public or private, Uh, you will at some point have to sit through this speech and learn about (laughs) its background. And uh, I I can't remember when it happened for me, but I would imagine it was probably third or fourth grade, uh, something in there. Um, And it's it's one of those historical events. I think it's interesting that it is so well known that it often doesn't really get brought up that much, I would say, in college surveys. Um, You know, I... Uh, took U.S. history surveys in college myself. I uh, was a teaching assistant for half a dozen American history surveys in graduate school. And then, of course, I've been teaching U.S. history surveys for the past decade as a professor. And in all that time, it's almost kind of one of these events that's taken as a granted. You know, it's like, oh, everybody knows about the I Have a Dream Mm -hmm. speech. And so I think, you know, from the developer standpoint it's uh it's an idea that i think has some merit um but i would almost say that it, it's an idea that maybe would go better with a maybe a lesser known historical event <laughs> just because i feel like everybody does get this content in grade school uh in the states um and there's uh, been some criticism of this mode as you would probably expect uh because Uh, player characters going into this mode uh, can, uh, you know, take on whatever character they want to be. So, you know, you've got uh, all sorts of images online in which, you know, people are dressed up as superheroes and as, you know, characters from Rick and Morty uh, and, you know, just these outrageous Fortnite costumes. And they are walking around in this somber scene Uh, while uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s voice rings through uh, the game world. Um, And there are some kind of light interactive moments. You can go to different sections of the the mall in Washington and uh, do some jump puzzles, uh, do some light uh, shooting puzzles in which you're opening up additional content uh, related to the speech and then also the historical context around it. Um, there are also kind of a, a short little snippets and areas uh, where they provide more historical detail, uh, particularly related to the events in the civil rights movement in the run up to the speech, uh, particularly uh, Birmingham uh, protest, uh, the Albany movement. Uh, there's a section on uh, Montgomery bus boycott and uh, Rosa Parks. Uh, So there's a little bit of kind of understanding of what led to this speech and then why the speech was important. But I think a a good deal of the criticism uh, is warranted uh, because of this kind of, you know, kind of awkward, tonally dissonant uh, uh, setting for uh, this historical game. I mean, it it is attempting to provide players with a historical lesson, but it's doing it in a setting that I think... Um, is not built for that kind of lesson. Uh, (laughs) And just to wrap things up on this, uh, John, I don't know if you've gotten to play it, but um, I have uh, been attempting uh, to do a history respond episode on this game. And I have approached uh, four different scholars uh, to do this episode and they have all turned me down. Uh, so mm. I think that, you know, it might be an indictment of history respond. Uh, but I, I think, uh, from the responses I've gotten so far, it's more of a criticism or a skepticism of Fortnite, uh, than of anything else.
1: Well, I was going to ask you, Bob, cause I haven't played it. And, you know, I saw, um, they kind of had this trailer slash video thing, and it just got mocked a lot online. And I think that, it got a kind of mockery in the same way that um, I forget which Kardashian sister um, solved racism by sharing her Pepsi back this, <laughs> in the summer that George Floyd was murdered. People remember that. And yeah. the the Fortnite video kind of got that same kind of reaction. But even now, as you were talking about it, there's more to it. I mean, I guess you've already kind of expressed your feelings about it, but like displaying it because that's, that's, that's the bet, right? Is it the interactive thing and people who play Fortnite, that's what they're kind of betting on. I mean, is it an improvement? Is, is it working to any extent or is it really just kind of struggling the whole time? Yeah. So does,
0: does playing it, uh, redeem it at all?
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. And I would
0: say no. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. I would say that the experience of playing it, the, the interactive elements are so light that it's almost like uh you are walking around the mall, a recreation of the mall in Washington, while a YouTube video of the speech is playing. That's mm. that's what it's like. Now, the right. interactive elements, they do, you know, add to the story. Uh, they do provide some context, but it's a bit like the historical context that you would find in a AAA game like Assassin's Creed. You know, one of the original Assassin's Creed is kind of historical context that you have to go and find rather than having to play through it in order to advance the speech or advance the story. So, now there are limitations uh, on what the player character can do in this mode. Uh, So, for instance, uh, you know, there's all sorts of uh, emotes that are limited, uh, (laughs) you know, player actions that are limited. Uh, But at the same time, you know, you have people just kind of running around and jumping, you know, and, you know, goofing off and uh, which is fine because, you know, it's Fortnite, but, you know, I think with the intention of this game and how important this moment is for American history, for how important it is for uh, black culture in particular, uh, it can feel disrespectful, I think, you know, and I can't say this as uh, a black person, but I just looking at it from the outside, it does seem like uh, yeah, ugh, it's like you know i i I think it it misses the mark in mm-hmm. in the attempt of doing something useful in an attempt of doing something compelling it ends up feeling uh a bit like a pastiche of you know something more significant
1: yeah my 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 personal feeling on it, and I haven't played it so i d I i would confess to that is that um <laughs> you know i it's a bit frustrating that some people i guess would see this as an indictment that video games cannot do these things. Um, I think it's more an indictment of a kind of a half-assed approach honestly mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. sense that I think they kind of felt well we've done Drake concerts we've done Ariana Grande concerts we'll do that and, and I think with the best of intentions but like I don't think it works whereas you know I, I'm sure our ki- your kids watch similar things Bob like my seven-year-old remember last year of course he was at home doing school a lot and one of the videos that you know they had him watch was a pretty entertaining video where one of the all these different you know children but one of them was like a child version of jackie robinson um and this was around jack robinson day in the major league baseball season and it was just you know it was like any other cartoon and my kids are really into it and they learned about they learned who jackie robinson was in a way that was very kind of parallel or congruent with the other stuff they watch you know like it just it, it all it just it wasn't an awkward you know I remember these videos as a young person where it's like oh my god you're rolling your eyes especially as a teenager because it's so obvious or whatever so like it can be done and the Fortnite game the game mode um didn't do it <laughs> it seems i i so bob i'm going to try something i'm an amateur saying so i'm going to try a segway
0: right? okay are you ready for I'm ready. this i'm, I'm holding so on to how the edge would of my you
1: seat. and you're the you're the best person to ask this How would you compare, you mentioned Assassin's Creed a minute ago, but how would you directly compare the March Through Time Fortnite mode to, for example, a Discovery Tour mode in an Assassin's Creed game?
0: (laughs) Well, I'm glad you asked, John, because uh, we are about to see the release of a new Assassin's Creed Discovery Tour mode called Discovery Tour Viking Age. Uh, And that is coming out, uh, I think, uh, uh, next Tuesday, October 19th. I think that's the date. Yeah, October 19th is definitely right. I don't know what day of the week it is. But uh, Discovery Tour Viking Age. This is the Discovery Tour mode focused on uh, the Vikings, focused on the so-called Dark Ages, and uh, related to and attached to uh, the base version of Assassin's Creed Valhalla. So if you are listening to this and you own a copy of uh, Valhalla, whether that is on PC, uh, Xbox, uh, PS5, whatever, PS4, uh, you will receive a copy of Discovery Tour uh, for free. And then uh, if you uh, don't have the game, uh, but you are interested in kind of their historically themed version of Valhalla, uh, then I think at some point this year you can pay $20 uh, to get access to this and uh this mode and the kind of the predecessors to this we've had a discovery tour mode for ancient egypt and then also one for ancient greece prior to this this mode i think takes a much more serious look at history and historical context and it is a mode that i think is pretty incredible in the sense that i can't imagine ubisoft makes that much money off of this mode you know I I could be wrong but uh, I can't imagine they make that much money off this and it is something that is really pitched to educators uh, to use in the classroom and so whereas I feel like MLK's March Through Time and Fortnite is a bit like um, you know an attempt by Epic Games to say hey look how look how socially conscious we are, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, look at look at how, um, uh, uh, you know, friendly we are to these social causes, these social movements, um, Discovery Tour mode, you know, there's nobody, I feel like really cajoling Ubisoft to make this game. And I don't know how much of the demand there is for this game. And yet, uh, in this upcoming mode, uh, Viking Age, they really look like they've doubled down. On uh, the work with scholars and historians and linguists uh, and archaeologists to try to provide players of Discovery Tour mode with uh, a better sense of the world of uh, the so-called Viking Age. You know, this age in the uh, the uh, ninth and tenth centuries. And uh, yeah, and so it's it's fascinating to me. You know, I. I remember when the first discovery tour came out uh, several years ago now and thinking, Oh you know, that was a fun attempt and I'm sure we'll never see another one. And then (laughs) discovery tour ancient Greece came out and I was like, Oh, you know, it's interesting. It did this again, but I'm sure we'll never see another one. And now here we are and we've got a third discovery tour mode coming out next week. And it's just remarkable to me. I, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how it's doing for them, but I do appreciate the effort.
1: No, I, it, it, it it's it's amazing, and it's kind of one of these things where you could argue, oh, well, they're they're doing it for that kind of PR type thing. But like, with all due respect to ourselves, I mean, is the PR really that valuable? I mean, maybe it is. It, maybe there's a sense and, that they can see this coming that there's going to be that schools will start to adopt these things more. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. sorry about.
0: Well, I was going to say, yeah, th- there could be some attempts there to do some uh, some game washing, given Ubisoft's recent problems <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, their recent yeah. problems we talked about on this podcast related to uh, sexual harassment, uh, sexual assault, in some circumstances as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and recent turnover uh, at their, uh, uh, their home base. But, uh, you know, I, again, you know, does this kind of educational mode, does this edutainment mode really do that work for them? I, I don't really know. And, you know, what kind of business is it doing for them? Um, and so to briefly, uh, you know, just kind of preview this a bit more Discovery Tour mode uh, prior to this point, Uh, and we've done episodes on this mode for the Ancient Egypt one and then also the um, Ancient Greece version, in both these modes, those earlier versions of Discovery Tour felt very much like a museum exhibit. In other words, you would Mm -hmm. go up to uh, different markers in the game world, and you would click on a thing, and then a narration would play, and you would get some separate images or maybe some actions by NPCs in the game. Uh, But in this new Discovery Tour mode that's coming out next week, uh, it has got a a narrative element to it. So you follow the story of uh, characters uh, set within uh, the world of Assassin's Creed Valhalla, but they aren't running around stabbing people and murdering and, uh, you know, stealing stuff, right? Uh, They are focusing instead on uh, the stories of, of various individuals uh in uh this era of history uh there is a merchant family there is uh um english monk uh, i guess I should say anglo saxon monk uh and then uh king alfred uh and so in each of these instances, you get the opportunity uh to follow along their story and see what their daily life is like so in this mode, they've really done a lot of extra work uh from you know what we've seen with the uh, preview coverage. They've really done a lot of extra work in trying to make this mode more interactive and kind of leaning into the gameplay elements of an Assassin's Creed game, rather than just make it like a, you know, uh, a museum exhibit.
1: Yeah, and it's fascinating. And you know, you, you've you've um, interviewed Maxime Durand before, Bob, um, and talked to him. And we know we had we had talked to Andrew Bird and. Brenner Reinhardt Bird a few years ago for Far Cry Primal, and so they've they've done interesting things like with Far Cry Primal they were like let's let's hire these academics to help us make a plausible language they might have spoken you know it's like they did not need to do that so there's these kind of intriguing ideas and it's um, you're completely right Bob to mention the to use euphemism problems Ubisoft has right now are the very serious working culture considerations mm-hmm. that we we're, were all aware of and can be googled very quickly. Um, It's a real pity, actually, because those those commitments that are there, I would ordinarily in isolation, I would consider hopeful signs of of an interesting work culture, a positive work culture. Um, It just goes to show how complex those dynamics can be. Yeah. You know, and and I would point out to the listeners as well, I've been trying to find out and I can't find out if the ubisoft plus subscription service will include the discovery tour on the 19th but it does have the previous two discovery tours mm-hmm. um and in the united states at least ubisoft plus is 15 dollars a month and you can use it with amazon luna or google stadia they have all these different things but um that would be you know for the price of 15 dollars, you could for as long as you can do it inside a month you could road test such a mode or mm-hmm. use it to your heart's content mm-hmm. so um, the 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 Valhalla version on Plus is the, their Ultimate Edition. Mm-hmm. So I suspect they will make the Discovery yes. Tour available yes. on the I, same day. As, as
0: far as I know, Discovery Tour comes okay. even if you just own the base version of the game. So oh, awesome. Okay. You don't cool. even have to have the, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, Gold Edition DLC, all of that stuff. It just comes with it. Um, That's great. So, yeah, it's... It's interesting, and I, I'm really, really curious uh, what kind of business that does for them or what kind of rationale they have for this. I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I just think mm-hmm. it's such a fascinating project. But I will say, you know, not putting aside all of the uh, mm-hmm. issues with Ubisoft in general, I do I do appreciate that this mode exists and that they're trying it. Um But, you know, as long as those issues still exist with Ubisoft in general, we're just going to keep talking about them uh, Mm -hmm. on the show. And, uh, you know, I can definitely say, as we've talked about in previous podcasts uh, related to Ubisoft games and Assassin's Creed in particular, you know, I feel like I've had to do a lot of soul searching, uh, continuing to talk about Ubisoft products, Uh, maybe less so with Discovery Tour. Uh, But definitely with, you know, other games, other Ubisoft projects, I feel like I don't really want to, I really want to, you know, focus on them or try to give them space because I just feel like, you know, it's in some way contributing to that, uh, the maintenance of that culture that has been so destructive uh, recently. So, yeah, that's, yeah.
1: It's really hard i mean it's something you know a a student reached out to me at the start of uh, the autumn and asked me if we were going to continue playing overwatch because of course it's a blizzard game and blizzard Mm -hmm. are being sued by the state of california and now the us government and um and i said we were going to continue but it's something and you know frankly this is a failing on my part we haven't done it yet just for us to get together as a group and say can we just say it out loud this is a thing this company Mm -hmm. has been accused of doing credibly accused of doing And it's something I'd like us to be thinking about. Um, Now I'm happy to say that the captain of Overwatch, our entire Overwatch team, are are a conscientious group of people. So, you know, I I think they would actually like to do that. But yeah, these are. It would feel odd not to mention it. Yeah, you know, you start that, and and that's the whole problem, right? Is like this, and until those issues get resolved, it is what it is.
0: Yeah. Uh, so we it's have hard. we have a Discovery Tour mode, uh, Viking Age, coming out uh, October 19th. Um, then later on this month, uh, in upcoming history game releases, we have Age of Empires IV, uh, which will be coming out on October 28th. And uh, this is a game I'm sure we'll cover at some point uh, in November or December. Uh, but this game is kind of setting itself up to be essentially a remake of Age of Empires 2, which I would guess is probably the most popular uh, of these uh, real-time strategy games. And uh, so that game is set in uh, the medieval world uh, with, I think, uh, some uh, uh, gameplay elements that might take it further afield than just uh, uh, medieval Europe. Uh, And so that's that's a game I can't say that I'm really looking forward to. Um, You know, I feel like... uh, Real-time strategy games are a difficult sale, uh, especially now, you know, 20 years after Age of Empires II came out. But, uh, you know, it is it is a history game, and it's one that a lot of people really find compelling. Uh, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, when you think about uh, a lot of the scholarship on uh, history games and its depiction, their depiction of the Middle Ages, you know, Age of Empires II is a kind of a touchstone game in that regard. So I think we'll, we'll probably have a look at this. I I don't know. Are you, do you feel exhausted by RTS games, (laughs) John? I, I don't want to speak for both of us here. I mean, a little bit. I think,
1: um, I, I was on, um, Friends of the show, um, Brian and Corey, mm. their pot hey guys, their their podcast starting point. I was on there a few weeks ago and they wanted to talk with Age of Empires 4. we had a really fun chat talking about it and um I think Rock Paper Shotgun, the venerable uh British PC gaming website, calls this game Age of Empires two two which i think is pretty good which is pretty everyone's like we've we, we've we've thrown age of empires three into the memory hole um part of me wonders the extent to which um you know the analogy i use of those guys was talking about um you know there probably is an audience for this kind of game that audience has a disposable income because they played this game a lot when they were like 16 yeah and now they're 45 um like, I'm talking about myself here. And um, and if you can tap into enough of those people, you know, it's their Fortnite almost. You know, like, that's entirely possible that could happen mm-hmm. or something similar to that can happen. Or And I, I just wonder, what does a game like that need? Like, does it need to sell a certain amount of copies to people who will buy it, play five hours and not play it anymore? But because it has... Five thousand people on the servers. Two years later, it was a success. I don't know. I just don't know what the business model for that game actually is. Yeah,
0: I don't either. You know. Yeah, it looks good, but uh, it does. Yeah. Yeah. Again, like, yeah. What is the success there? What does success look like for them? Maybe you know that's for billionaires to worry about. But still, it it is kind of a weird. It's a weird thing. And we, you and I, you know, having grown up with that series, you and I Mm -hmm. are the the best market. For it. Yes. And I'm sitting here being like, "Eh, yeah, eh, I don't, you know, not sure. I'm sure.
1: Maybe if we'd uh, had kids earlier and they were in college, we'd be buying it, but uh, because we could send 10 hours down it or something. what Brian had pointed out to me on Starting Point was um, <laughs> he had apparently played some of the beta and um, he unlocked trebuchets and the entire game stopped to show him effectively like a YouTube, like like an old Encarta CD rom Romcyclopedia version of like, uh, here's what a trebuchet is. Okay, <laughs> like, okay. Which <laughs> so I was like, okay. And it does kind of fit that game's kind of quasi-grognard you know, George Costanza, I'll be a history buff type approach to history. (laughs) and I think that's kind of what the game is doing. Um, And so some people like that, you know, some people who can tell you what the sizes of the armies were in, in, you know, of all the major battles, of the Punic Wars, Mm -hmm. this is kind of the game for those people. Mm -hmm. And I say that with love, I'm not making fun of anybody here. Um, It's one way to look at histories and it's different from Assassin's Creed Discovery Tour. And it's different from, you know, Um, I'm going to try it again, a Call of Duty game, for example, or uh, one of those World War II shooters.
0: (laughs) Well, speaking of Call of Duty and World War II, uh, in the uh, lengthy time it took us to come out with a new podcast, uh, we had a new Call of Duty game announced, uh, which will be coming out on November 5th, worldwide release, uh, and it is called Call of Duty Vanguard, uh, and this is being developed by Sledgehammer Games, And it is uh, set in World War II. And in fact, it it says that it's set uh, near the end of the Second World War. And it's going to follow the story of special forces uh, fighting in different theaters at the end of the Second World War, uh, including in the Pacific, uh, Western and Eastern Europe, uh, and then in North Africa. And uh, this is a game uh, developed by Sledgehammer. Sledgehammer uh, was uh, the developers of 2017's uh, Call of Duty WW2, uh, which, uh, I don't know if you know this, John, but was uh, the most popular game in 2017 in terms of total sales. Uh, So a history game. uh, Really? Number one on the charts. Yeah. And, uh, And so World War II, still very popular. Uh, as a setting for historical games, uh, very popular with the Call of Duty uh, audience in particular. Uh, And uh, we don't know that much about uh, the story so far, Um, but we do know that it is kind of going for this uh, special forces, small special forces team, character-driven, diverse cast, uh yeah, we've got soldiers uh who are a Soviet a female Soviet sniper. Uh we've got uh uh a British paratrooper, um we've got a uh oh, he's a Cameroonian uh British paratrooper. Uh, and uh, yeah, so oh, and then a Soviet uh, oh Soviet sniper. I already said that. Sorry, I'm just keep reading over the same text over again, thinking it's new. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, so it, it does seem to be kind of uh, building off of uh, Call of Duty World War II uh, in 2017, in the sense that it is uh, featuring the same development team, Sledgehammer, but it is kind of diversifying the cast and I think the focus. Uh, Because Call of Duty World War II was really just a a traditional retelling of uh, American troops, American troop platoon uh, on the Western Front uh, during the uh, Second World War, 1944 uh, in particular. Uh, So, you know, we'll see. I mean, uh, Call of Duty, it really hasn't changed in the past 20 years. It's still, you know, practicing the holy art of left trigger, right trigger. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and you know, uh, press A to pay respects and whatnot. So, um, yeah, I I can't say that I'm really eager to play this game, but uh, of course, as somebody who studies modern European history, somebody who uh, is interested in historical games, I feel it's kind of I'm duty bound uh, to play this game at some point. <laughs>
1: it it feels to me a bit like age of empires 4 again where like you know
0: the video game
1: the video game market is just so enormous now you can have these enorm very large constituencies of game players that like i just don't enter into those constituencies ever mm-hmm. like call of duty games are just not my thing and modern warfare games these they're they're just not my thing um and i guess maybe they i should at least play them to 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 have a sense of where game kind of culture is or whatever. But um, it's just interesting to me. Like, you know, the people out there playing Call of Duty who don't play anything else. People who play NBA 2K don't play anything else. Yep. People who, hopefully for the Age of Empires, people play Age of Empires 4 and nothing else. You mm-hmm. know, these are kind of, um, it's just fascinating to me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that does it with history games we've been playing. That does it for upcoming history game releases. Uh, so John, uh, I'm wondering... Uh, what else have you been doing uh, besides playing history games? What other games have you been playing? Books you've been reading? Uh, anything you think it might interest the history Respawn audience?
1: Uh, uh, lots of stuff. Well, I'm uh, I'm I'm playing Diablo II Resurrected, um, which I decided to get on my PlayStation, and so has the dual kind of thrill of playing a Diablo game on a console, which I'd never done before which, as reported by others, works really well, surprisingly so. Like, I just assume these games involve... Damaging your mouse over time by consistently <laughs> clicking. Or, um,
0: or carpal tunnel syndrome. Yeah.
1: Right, exactly. But it actually works very well on um, console. And I had, I mean, I've kinda, i kind of, I didn't have the teenage experience to be able to, even though I'm the right age to have the experience, I didn't really have that experience. I'm pretty sure, Bob, I still have your CD copies of the game here in my house no in Kentucky. No kidding. No kidding. I wow. think I do. Yeah. So if you're wondering where that is, I think that's. <laughs> 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 So I I had a weird... So I got the nostalgia thing a little bit, but I also got a kind of a weird discovering it now kind of mode. Um, It is... You're definitely playing Blizzard Tax. I don't know that like 40 bucks is... That's maybe a little bit steep, but um, it's really good. And what's really impressive about it is that um, the graphics are demonstrably better, obviously, the audio is wonderful and the music is really good and i remember when diablo 3 came out and some people were very 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 frustrated with the look of that game and the feel of the game and playing this resurrected version diablo 2 you can really kind of get a sense of just how completely different the games are tonally and everything else and to the point honestly where i was like well how because a lot of the basic mechanics are the same like your your player walks the same way the inventory is the same size there's all these things they chose not to change. Um so to the point where I was like how much do they really do and then this is my favorite part of the game. Um and we're getting old now so we're we're now living through the museumification of our childhoods which is really weird. Um <laughs> But you press a button on the PlayStation, I forget, I think it's holding down the kind of the what I think of as the map button, the large button, and I think left trigger simultaneously on a computer. It's the letter G on your keyboard, and it switches immediately at any point, no matter what you're doing, it switches from the modern graphics to the original graphics. Mm. And that gimmick is so good, like it works <laughs> so well. It's so cool. And... Although the graphics original game are great, it's kind of funny how I had lulled myself into how much they really do. And then you switch the graphics and it's like, oh, my God. Like, I mean, it's, you know, the original game was
0: 1994, I think, or something like that, or 96, maybe. Uh, um, yes, Diablo 1 was 96, I believe. And Diablo 1 no, was 96. No, yeah. no, 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 no. Diablo 1, I think, was 94. And Diablo okay. 2, I want to say it was 2000. Okay. Let me okay. look, let me so, look yeah. this up.
1: Yeah, no, yeah. You, now, you keep we've, now we've done it to ourselves. So just to say that, like, um, and you know, the the, the Warcraft three kind of when they did this Warcraft three, they they really, frankly, they screwed the pooch, sadly, and just did a lot of frustrating things um, that annoyed people. And this is before their very recent troubles. But Diablo two, I think the resurrected version is, um, I think it definitely, I think it does justice to those original games. It's a great way to. It's the only way that a sane person. Well, that's not fair, but it's 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 the most obvious and easiest way to get into the game in 2021. And there's a, there's a game to get into there. And my favorite thing about it, actually, um, because it is a very, it's it's you know, I hope you like the idea of farming this level for hours, because mm-hmm. um, that's the game it is. They did not change that part, um, but the music and kind of the because the music is a huge part of this. The their success in crafting a specific atmosphere, mm-hmm. um, it, it just worked. They just they just did it. yeah. And, and so it's, 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 it's very, very enjoyable and um, worth keeping an eye out for for people who think they might be intrigued. Maybe maybe even wait for a Christmas sale if you want or something like that. But um, yeah, I'm really glad I got it. Yeah. I kind of I had that classic buyer's remorse of like, oh, John, you've got to stop buying video games. But, I, but actually, it's good.
0: <laughs> yeah. So Diablo 1, 1997. And Diablo 2 oh, was 2000 And uh, dear listener... Later than I thought. Dear listener, I uh, I almost uh, failed out of college uh, because <laughs> playing too much Diablo 2 back in the day. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm i interested in getting this game, but I'm also terrified of getting this game because, uh, uh, well, I also I kind of feel yuck about giving Activision Blizzard money, uh, but also yeah. I, I'm incredibly worried that uh, this will suck up my life uh like it did 20 years ago uh so i have the word to... is the word is relapse relapse yeah <laughs> this is kind of, and the, the 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 other
1: game um i'm skipping order a tiny bit here because as i know you've played a bunch of it as well bob and you can speak about it more the other game i've played is also kind of a although more recent uh retread is back
0: for blood which mm. is kind of would you call it a spiritual sequel to Left for Dead and Left 4 Dead Two? I guess, or yeah, you know, you know, I, would, I, would, I mean it's the same development team. I would almost say it's a yeah. direct sequel, even though yeah. it's not uh, published by Valve.
1: Yeah, well, it's—I I mean, I haven't played as much of it as I would like to, but uh, it's great. It's really good. I mean, Bob, you were that—you were a big. I kind of played the Left 4 Dead with bots and just kind of, I didn't like playing with other people. then. <laughs> but you actually played the game the way it was meant to be. So, like, what do you think of Back for Blood as a kind of a Left 4 Dead veteran?
0: Yeah, um, so uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Left 4 Dead is a 4VE uh, um, game, you know, a co-op of uh, 4 uh, against uh, enemy computer players or uh, a team of 4 enemy uh Zod, director yeah director yeah and yeah. uh it's a game that uh, i think originally first game came out in 2008 and then the second game came out in 2010 2011 somewhere in there and my lord i mean i think <laughs> it was a game that the, you know if diablo 2 almost failed me out of undergrad then uh, left for dead almost failed me out of graduate school um <laughs> and it's just a game that i really enjoyed playing i love the cooperative aspect of it i really i don't really like competitive shooters um if you want to get a sense of uh my abilities in a competitive shooter you should go and see uh the history respawn episode i did with uh uh chris kemshaw uh for uh the (laughs) world war one uh competitive shooter Uh, i think it was tannenberg uh, that we played but Mm. Chris must've killed me like 60 times during the course of that episode, <laughs> mercilessly just destroying me. Uh, so I don't like competitive shooters, but I do like these cooperative shooters and back for blood, uh, in which you are playing as a one of four survivors in a zombie apocalypse and making your way through these, uh, well-designed, uh, levels, uh, to escape, uh, just a thrilling experience you know working with teammates to try to get out of it you know uh, basing your success on how many people survive what kind of state they're in at the end Uh, and then also in multiplayer uh, knowing that you're facing off against not just uh, the computer director but against other player characters uh, enemy player characters is really thrilling and uh, I'm so glad this game is out I'm so glad that they made a new update to the Left for Dead uh, series, I guess you could say, or you know, Left for Dead like. Mm-hmm. And I think this game so far has exceeded all of my expectations. It has got the the same sort of uh, Left for Dead DNA in terms of mm-hmm. you know the adrenaline's pumping, and you've got the cooperative aspects, uh, but it also looks fantastic. I've been playing on PC, and I just think the graphics are phenomenal. Um, and I think the control of your player character, it feels it feels good. It feels much better than the old uh, Left 4 Dead control, which felt a little bit stick-like. Uh, uh, the old mm-hmm. Left 4 Dead games were made with uh, uh, the Source engine, which was incredible, of course, back in 2008, uh, but now is really, I think, showing its age in a lot of different ways, especially with regards to player movement and physics. And uh, whatever engine they're using for this one is really it's done a nice job. And I, I played three hours, uh, last night. I played a, uh, through a campaign with a couple of other historians, uh, friends of the show. Uh, and I can't wait to get back in and play more tonight. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and for people who never played the originals or aren't familiar with the game, I mean, so the idea is you're going through these different kind of maps with these, um, various zombies all over the place. And there's lots of, the, the devils in the details in the sense that there you can provoke a swarm uh, by accident mm-hmm. which is a which is a bad time and then there are specials so there's different types of like zombies that stick out that are harder to kill or more aggressive towards you or do like there's a zombie that kind of clings himself to walls like Spider-Man and spits at you from a distance. There's uh there's the big kind of portentous one that is trying it spits at you and if you get close enough it'll just explode and cover you all in goop and all this kind of stuff. Um and then the modern Back for Blood has added deck building, which I know sounds like the most almost like like satire at this point that every game has to have deck building in it. But it works and it's great. <laughs> it's really good. It's these series of buffs that you can kind of choose to try and give yourself. Um and then the gate the gunplay, like Bob mentioned a minute ago, are alluded to. I mean, at first I actually didn't kind of like it, and then I actually kind of it clicked with me what they were doing with the guns and um that game feels great. Feels very tactile. Mm-hmm. Yes. In a way, yeah, which is great. Yeah,
0: yeah, um, yeah. I love that game. Can't wait to play it. And I think John has added me as a friend on. Uh, yeah. Xbox we're going to make it Live. Happen. So we're we're gonna yeah. try to make it happen. I don't think we'll do yeah. a history respawn episode out of it, but uh, uh. yeah, still still a lot of fun. Um, so was that for you what else you what? been playing oh, yeah, yeah that
1: was i i've been playing like I, i'm i'm back on out of the park baseball for some reason and playing lots of other small things but one of these days i'd like to find a way to do the historical mode in that baseball game mm-hmm. um but for people who don't know out of the Park baseball is a management game that is effectively a spreadsheet so it, it's hard to make a video of that um but what have you been playing bob what else have you been well, Muck so with.
0: besides Back for Blood, I've been playing. I played through uh, Arcane Studios' Deathloop, uh, which Ooh. was a is currently a timed exclusive on PlayStation Five, but it should come to PC and Xbox uh, sometime next fall. And uh, this is a game uh, that uh, is developed by Arcane Studios, uh, the makers of uh, Dishonored and Prey. Uh, And it is a game uh, in which you are playing as uh, a security officer named Colt uh, who is stuck on an island uh, in which you are in the midst of a time loop. And so it's kind of a bit like, um, as many commentators have pointed out, it's a bit like uh, Groundhog Day meets uh, Dishonored. Uh, And (laughs) uh, you're on this island that features uh, kind of a, uh, a retro uh, early to mid 1970s aesthetic in terms of clothing and then the look of buildings and kind of the character dialogue as well uh, and the music fantastic music in this game uh and uh, the game in terms of gameplay uh first person uh action stealth it plays just like a dishonored game and uh uh, I think I, I ended up spending about uh, 30 hours in this game, so a good chunk of time. I really enjoyed my time with it. I think a lot of people, um, you know, have promoted this as a game of the year candidate, and I would I would I would agree with that. But I think this game for me it goes just short of being uh, an instant classic because it feels a bit wonky in the same way that, or it feels a little bit. It doesn't work in the same way that Dishonored uh, doesn't work in the sense that I always feel like my character is kind of swimming uh, through the levels, if that makes sense. And I don't feel like my actions and my movements are really precise in the way that I would want. And I feel like the developers have kind of gotten around that a little bit by making it easier in this game for you to react to coming out of uh, stealth. Right and finding ways to overcome uh, losing your, uh, you know, losing your stealth or losing your uh, ability to hide. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the way that Arcane does first-person action, I just, I just wish it was sharper. I wish it was uh, a bit more cut and dry. Um, mm. But still. I love the story love the gameplay i love the multiplayer as well you have a kind of a dark dark souls type multiplayer going on where you invade somebody else's game uh as a an assassin named juliana and she is trying to stop colt from breaking this time loop uh and so you can run through and take down uh other uh other players as they're trying to break this time loop and it's uh it's quite a bit of fun, and highly recommend it. If you enjoy Dishonored, you absolutely should play this game. Uh, but if you were maybe a little skeptical about Dishonored, uh, maybe maybe wait until this game goes on sale, uh, because this is hmm. this is definitely just more Dishonored with a new setting.
1: Hmm. Well, that sounds promising to me. It's interesting you talk about Arcane. I guess is kind of invested at the moment, or I guess it's I guess it's kind of the way they do action anyway. But mentioning Back for Blood versus Left For Dead and it's such an engine and stuff, even if there was even if in Arcane they kinda get it that they'd be interested in tweaking the kind of that feel of that game. If that's something that requires a new engine or something like that, the tech debt becomes so intimidating. Yeah. As they call it. And you're looking at like, well, that adds two years to a at that point we can't do it kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I, I kind of, because I, I, I do know what you mean, but I don't think it bothers me as, as much as it bothers you. I, have all, I like those Dishonored games. So I, I think Deathloop is something I'd maybe treat myself to in the new year kind of thing. Um, I just couldn't see myself finding time to play it at the moment. <laughs> but people said, people love that game. It's, it's very good. It. It's very good. Yeah.
0: Um, cool. You know, and again, if you if you like any of Arcane Studios' games, you absolutely must play it. Uh, it's easy to recommend in that regard. Uh, and then beyond Deathloop and Back for Blood, I've actually been doing some reading. Um, you know, hard to believe, I know. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I read a couple of books recently. Uh, the first one is uh, Jason Stryer's uh, new book called uh, Press Reset, uh, Ruin and Recovery in the video game industry. And this is a follow-up to his uh, Other uh, video game development book called Blood, Sweat, and Pixels. Um, I'm not a big fan of the titles of his books, but (laughs) I think the content is really good. And in Press Reset, he follows the story of the end of uh, several uh, game development studios, including those that made uh, Bioshock Infinite and uh, Dead Space and, uh, um, oh, what is it... Uh, 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 oh, Kurt Schilling's game, 38 uh, Studios. 38 Studios, yeah. Uh, Kingdom of Amalur, is that it? I, I think that's that it. That was it, yeah, that was yeah. it. And uh, so really interesting stories, kind of behind-the-scenes look about what happens when uh, uh, game studios fail and why they fail and why they fall apart, and then what happens to the people in those game studios uh, and, you know, discussions in particular. Uh, the, ga- the book starts with a long chapter about Warren Spector uh, who was uh, uh, okay. involved with uh, the development of Deus Ex back in the day kind of a seminal um, you know first person action game uh, and then has also done all sorts of other games System Shock 2 for instance and uh, but talks about his life and how uh, he's gone through several different studio failures, uh, you know, areas where he's lost his job and hasn't been able to get a new one. And this is like a 30 year career. Uh, oh, and, you know, Jason Schreier is just kind of pointing to the commonality within the long history of video games, you know, going back to the 1980s as to, you know, why has this happened to the video game industry? Why is this, you know, significant turnover Uh, over and over again, even sometimes with really successful games like Bioshock Infinite. Um, So, Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, good book, uh, easy read, you know, a couple hundred pages, but I think worthwhile, especially if you are interested in learning a bit more about how the game development business works uh, from Mm -hmm. a kind of behind-the-scenes perspective. Uh, And then the other book I've been reading is uh, Masters of Doom, uh, and this is uh, David Kushner's famous book, about the development of uh, id software uh, and in particular the story of john carmack and john romero uh, as they uh, create uh, doom and other uh, id properties uh, during the 1990s and john this is a book i think this book came out in i'm gonna i'm gonna look up the date here but i think it came out in early 2000s yeah 2003 john this is a book that i've owned in hardback for 15 years (laughs) I haven't read and so I finally decided you know what I'm just going to get it on Kindle and I'll probably read it if it's on my phone but if it's an actual physical book there's no way I'm going to sit down and look at this not with my kids and so I've been reading this book I I went to a a wedding in New Jersey uh, this past weekend so I spent a lot of time on the plane reading this and It's a fantastic book. It's incredibly well-written. It avoids, I think, the mistake that I think a lot of nonfiction uh, uh, books like this make, where it makes up a lot of dialogue. Uh, This this book doesn't include much dialogue at all, and the dialogue it does include feels like it's well-sourced. Uh, and I've really enjoyed it uh, and uh, highly recommend it if you're interested in, again, kind of a behind-the-scenes look at game development uh, or interested in the Doom series in particular. This is an easy book to recommend.
1: I, I read Masters of Doom probably around the time you bought it. I don't know why. I, I, read, it in, I read it in Austin, and um, I, I actually kind of want to read it again now because hearing you talk about it... Um, I remember um, one of the things, I, I agree, it's a fantastic book. One of the things I'm really liking about it was that I really kind of came away with, I wouldn't say like a full understanding of the John Carmack, John Romero relationship, but like that's something that people talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, how those two got on and Carmack kind of just stayed with Id forever and, and and moved on. And then Romero went on to do Romero things. Um, but that book, I thought, kind of sketches out well this is who these guys are you know it's not quite as simple as the 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 deathmatch inventing visionary and the tech guy but also it kind of was that and so it's kind of really interesting um i really like that about that book
0: well in the depiction that the book gives of these two developers in a lot of ways is unvarnished right you see Mm -hmm. warts and all perspective on these two guys and you know, I think a lot of video game books, video game history books, get rightly criticized for being kind of celebrations of uh, usually white North American developers. Uh, but this book doesn't really pull any punches, right? It takes a good long moment to criticize these guys when it's when it's deserved. And so I think, um, you know, go into this book, you know, expecting not a hagiography, but instead a, a, a pretty good, I feel, realistic portrait. Uh, of these two very famous and uh, mostly celebrated developers.
1: Yeah, he, he didn't, you know, he uh, that book, and it was only 15 years ago, wasn't written for a stereotypical gaming audience, whatever that was at that time. And Shrier now, I think, benefits from a different kind of an audience interested in different things. Um, I, I can't wait to read Press Reset. The whole thing fascinates me because people compare games to film all the time, which isn't necessarily doesn't always work but you know in the film industry especially if you work crew the idea that oh i'm i'm set you know I, i'm working on the new bond movie or whatever the case might be i'm working on this new marvel film i have employment for four months mm-hmm. um and i have to figure it out after that and then and and the idea that in the last few weeks of production the last couple weeks of production you're putting feelers out or someone is hooking you up with hey i've i'm get i've got i've been signed on for um this new um you know the next rocky movie or something you want to come with i heard they need a sound guy or you know whatever the mm-hmm. case might be that this is how that kind of business has worked traditionally but of course they now have the benefit of scale and they have that longer heritage where video games have grown up what feel, feels like very quickly um and so i think that's kind of an interesting idea because in some ways video games seems to have inherited that idea mm. like our studio can support whatever 15 people ordinarily, but we can support 60 when we're full on production mm. of the game. Now that the game is being released, 45 of you mm. can go. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll see you again next year when we ramp back up for the sequel mm-hmm. or something. And I think Shire, you know, to his credit, you know, that that's driving him a lot in, in what he's currently working on. And then, and he has, he has an audience, I think, and I'm sure he's the same. I'm sure he also wants his book to read about people who don't know games from Adam. And he works for Bloomberg for crying out loud. But um, um, I I think the audience is more sophisticated and is larger, even than in 2005, which is kind of a crazy thing to think.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, I would say, uh, you know, with the film industry, a lot of those uh, people behind the scenes, uh, actors included, they're in unions, uh, which is something Mm -hmm. that's completely lacking uh, with Mm -hmm. the video game industry, you know, to a large extent. So. You know, maybe that is a a reckoning uh, that is coming. You know, hopefully, you know, because reading the stories and press reset, it's really disheartening. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you have these moments and, you know, as middle-aged men, uh, John, I'm sure you've had similar moments where you kind of sit back and you (laughs) say to yourself, wow, I kind of worked my way to this position. I I wonder if I could have done something different, you know, and like kind of one of my daydreams is like, well, what if I had gone into game development or you know, mm-hmm. something like that. What it would what it would have been like? And I read this stories in press reset, and I'm like, "Oh, boy! I uh, maybe I dodged a bullet there. I don't know. I mean, it's not like academia was all uh, <laughs> rose garden, uh, but at the same time, uh, it's the grass is not always greener, especially when it comes to to making games.
1: Well, it's it's like Warren Spector is such a good example of that. Um, I met Warren Spector once when he was working in midway austin mm. um, on one of his many many stops you know here's a guy who has an astonishing cv really who can do the creative side who can do the tech side who can do it all and he's not necessarily guaranteed a job now yeah. maybe if you go up within blizzard for example theoretically you're guaranteed a job but it's hard where does, what does a 65 year old to go into the future, Warren inspector is nowhere near that age, what does it look like for Spector at that point? Mm-hmm. Um, And then the flip side, then, you know, the industry has all these problems. We talked about Ubisoft already in this podcast. Yeah. And Activision Blizzard, has, Blizzard, yeah. Activision Blizzard, because there's this question of like, you know, obviously how are we thinking about gender in these workplaces, but how are we thinking about age in these workplaces, yeah. seniority, power dynamics, and everything else? Video games has... I think it's demonstrable now they've no they've no idea what they're doing yeah. as an industry. Yeah. And um I see today, at least the day that we've recorded this podcast, um I want to get his name right cuz I'll mess it up. Um the he founded the uh, Undead Games, the Undead Labs, sorry, the guys who did the State of Decay games, Jeff Strain is his name. He's founded a new studio called Possibility Space and they're they're embracing what's called um uh ah, oh, forgive me, now I'm going to get this wrong. I think it's a distributed structure, I think mm-hmm. is what they call it. But basically the idea is that like, we'll hire you, you can you can live wherever you want. We're based in New Orleans, but you don't have to w- live in New Orleans to work with us. I myself think that being in person is an important part of things like that. And but But setting it up that way, which is like our policy is you can work from wherever, puts the employer in a position where they need to incentivize you to move to the place and be part of the in-person thing. And that that that, that changes it in, That changes the dynamic in a, in a very meaningful way, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of interests me as well because um, maybe that's something for someone like Warren Spector to be a vanguard of that, right? To be like, um, to kind of, you know, listen for, not to say Activision Blizzard is doomed, but there's only so much a company that size is realistically going to do or want to do in the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. Whereas companies founded in the next five years could, could, they could be the ones that set all those various trends, you know? Yeah, yeah. So would be interesting, yeah.
0: And I think one of the one of the criticisms I have of Schreier's book, A Press Reset, is that um, most of the people he's interviewed in this book are uh, white men. And so there's kind of mm-hmm. a great question that you have at the end, which he alludes to himself. And the conclusion is, you know, what is the perspective of... Uh, you know, people of color, or um, you know, women, or uh, different gender identities in this industry, and you know, if it's this bad for uh, the quote-unquote dominant group within games, then it must be even worse uh, for those other, uh, you know, poorly represented groups. And so, yeah, it's 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 a it's a tough read in many cases because you're looking at it and it's like. Gosh, uh, you know, somebody like Warren Spector is so successful, and yet he's still struggling to get games made into his 40s. And, you know, he talks uh, in his interview portion of the book, he talks about like, oh, well, uh, I basically had to give up on having kids, you know, in order to make this work, right? You know, it's like, wow, that's just, you know, and it's just... It's interesting to me, you know, as an old person now, um, it's interesting (laughs) to me of how little we've heard of these stories until the last few years. And I think it's been a large extent thanks to people like Jason Schreier, um, you know, thanks to other reporting uh, that we've begun to pull the curtain behind uh, the process of making games and just how often debilitating and frustrating and dangerous, uh, especially for women, you know, that process has been, uh, over the course of our lifetimes. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's an industry, you know, obviously we still love games. We're still doing the show, but it's something that desperately needs change. You know, I, it's funny. I think about this all the time with relation to the Gilded Age, you know, I teach a U.S. history survey and it's like, you know, you kind of almost feel looking at the game industry that it's in a gilded age moment here where there's just outright corruption all around you. And it it really needs, uh, a a set of institutionalized reforms and not just within the industry itself, but also probably from the government, uh, as well as what, you know, what we're seeing now with Activision Blizzard is, you know, government involvement, uh, in this lawsuits. And, uh, but yeah, it's just weird to me to to think as though we're living through one of these historical times, historical moments, in which there will be some major rectification with the game industry going forward.
1: And 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 it's fascinating because we're there's some there's an interesting broader of context in this in in the way that um, programming became this like thing for white dudes. In the early 80s late 70s and there's a lot of good books out there that talk about this dynamic that that was not a preordained thing mm-hmm. that um there were there I and mean, the, the history of computer science is littered with really important women you know like it's not just Ada lovelace you know there's lots of <laughs> there's a lot of women involved um in the history of programming um and so it's kind of yeah it's it, it, it's it's kind of interesting i look at it at possibility space the studio founded today and it's also something I guess you could look at it and say they've consciously chosen to make sure there's different kinds of people in their new leadership team. Then you look at some of the names, these are people who are like lead director of Watchdog Legion, um people who have been out there in the game space talking about like Austin Walker, um just they've been hired cuz they're good at what they do. <laughs> like it's not and and it's it, it I mean not to make make little of it, but it doesn't have to be that hard. Yeah. Um, but then maybe the advantage of possibility space has is that kind of clean slate thing. Like yeah. it can be one of my favorite anecdotes, um, you know, because Silicon Valley has historically has a nightmare in terms of diversity hiring. And they kind of at one point they went from only hiring white men to hiring um, people of all um, backgrounds who went to Yale. Right. And it turns out that one of the problems they were having was that. Uh, at least in some companies was the staple thing they did the interview was they, they had a whiteboard there and they would give you a problem that you had to write an algorithm for, like on the, on the whiteboard in front of everybody. And the thing is, if you went to Yale or Harvard, where all these guys went, that was just a thing you did in Yale and Harvard, like Mm -hmm. second year or something like that. Whereas if you went to UNC Chapel Hill, like also an extremely good university in North America, but that wasn't the pedagogy your instructors used. That's a really hard thing to do if you, if you don't. And it's not necessarily something that's actually useful. Like you don't do it in real life programming. Like let's get a whiteboard and work this out on paper. Like that's not what, how people actually work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so video games has to have similar anecdotes of like do this thing, you know? So it's, it's not designed as a discriminatory thing. You're just either subconsciously or carelessly assuming this person will do the thing you know how to do and and that's 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 one of the problems you're into, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, I think that does it. We went way over for this episode. Yeah, sorry, so. sorry everybody. My so, fault. Yeah. <laughs> listeners, you know, we didn't publish a podcast in September, but here we are in October just, you know, laying it down, you know, almost a double episode, so uh <laughs> I hope you hope you enjoyed what you heard uh and uh you know, we'll be back uh, with new episodes uh, coming up. I I can I can neither confirm or deny uh, that I have an episode of the podcast coming out next week. I'm not allowed. I'm under embargo. I'm not allowed to talk about it. But uh, uh, we'll have uh, more podcast episodes, uh, new video episodes as well, including a new uh, episode of Civs 101 coming out by the end of the month. And, uh, yeah, so lots to look forward to. Uh, And, uh, yeah, so, John, thanks for joining me, man.
1: Thanks a million, Bob. It was a great time.
0: And you did, dear listener. Thank you very much uh, for listening in. Uh, and please uh, keep up with everything related to history. Respond by visiting our website, historyrespond.com. And uh, until next time, goodbye.